God speaks. I am so, I'm, I'm thrilled to be at this part in this book. Last week doing, uh, a rather lengthy introduction. <laughs> I was prepared, but we never got to verse one. Um, so, uh, it was sort of a Bible study. It was kind of a study of a study. And, um, anyway. Uh, let's pray, folks. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this glorious book, the book of Hebrews, that, uh, Lord, as I know as we study this, as we get into it, and as we, especially as we apply these things that we see to our own lives, that, that you are going to bless. And, and we thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, Lord, so with that, I pray for each of us that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that truly want to understand what you have for us individually, what you want for us as a church. So we commit this time to you. We pray your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as I mentioned, we had a, a, a introduction. We looked at some, and I'm not going to belabor it again, uh, but we looked at the fact that this book, if you were going to sum it up, if you were going to talk about a theme, and it's simply this, Jesus is better. Uh, we see the, super, the superiority of Christ in this God, or in this book, in this letter. Uh, as I mentioned, it, it, it starts out as a letter and it ends, uh, sort of, it goes through and it becomes kind of a sermon. This, the, the writer here has a pastor's heart. And you'll see that over and over again as we go through that his, he has a genuine concern, a genuine concern for the people that he's writing to. We don't know a lot about the people that he's writing to. We do know that they were Hebrew Christians. They were people who were coming under not only the thumb of Rome, but coming under the thumb of Judaism and the temptation to go back and to get back into that old religious system that they had grown up in and that they were oh so familiar with. And yet the writer here knows the danger of that and knows the danger of going backwards in their understanding of Christ. They had wanted, this is, this takes place about 30 or so years after Jesus had been crucified, rose from the dead. And, and so they had been going along and persecution had interrupted in some ways. And they'd always been under some because the Jews hated the things of God when it came to the gospel of Christ, when it came to Messiah, they still, as Paul says in second Corinthians, there's a veil that lies over their heart. That's not removed except in Christ. And so there was this huge tension that was going on in the hearts and the minds and the lives of the Hebrew Christians in the first century. Why this book was written. We see that it's broken down into three parts and we're going to tackle the beginning of the first part. The first six chapters is that uh, Christ is superior to all. He's a superior person. Uh, and we'll look at that some this morning. We'll look at the personality of Christ, the person of God manifest in Christ. Uh, the second section in chapters 7 through 10, a superior priesthood. And then the third, a superior principle. We'll look at faith and what that really means in our lives as we, and that's months away. You guys know me. Um, what we're going to look at this morning is the first sentence in this book. And we probably won't get any further. Uh <laughs> You guys are excited about it. Um, fish a Kleenex out of here. Anyway, we're going to look at the first sentence because there is so much there. There, there's just 
again, it's packed uh, with information. There's two assumptions, two things that we assume going in, and uh, it's essential that we go in with this understanding. The first is that God exists. I mean, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you believe that he exists. And, and that's true. I mean, that's assumed with the writer writing to the people he's writing to. And it's assumed with us that you come in here with an understanding and with a knowledge that God does exist. The second thing that we want to assume here is that God speaks, that God has spoken and that he continues to speak because uh, if and that's something that's a departure from dry, dusty religion where you end up with a system that is impersonal, but he is a personal God. Christ is personal. He comes to us personally. That's why we talk about a personal relationship because he is a person. And we're going to look at that because what Judaism presented was a religious system. What Christianity presents is Christ. Huge difference in that. And so as we get digging in here, my prayer, and it has been, will continue to be, is that we understand and that we grasp that he, the person of Christ, wants to build and to feed into and to pour into us that relationship, that personal relationship with him. And that that will be enriched and enhanced and blessed through these studies. I'm going to read the first four verses of this wonderful epistle. Uh, which means letter. Uh, and then we're going to come back and we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking them a bit. Uh, so chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That is a mouthful. Uh, we could easily spend more than the balance of this hour talking about it. Seven things that are revealed about Christ. Seven things that are revealed about Jesus in just these four verses. This, and if you notice, that was one sentence. There were some commas in there, but it's one sentence in four verses. The first is that we see Christ as heir. The second, we see Christ as creator. Third, revealer. Fourth, sustainer. Fifth, redeemer. Sixth, ruler. And seventh, we see Christ as the supreme being. All of that in this one sentence. And, and, and folks, I, I would love to speed this up, but I'm not gonna. I mean, we have to talk about this. There's so much here. So we understand that when we look at the offices that Christ held and holds, we see him in three ways. We see him as prophet, priest, and king. He's the only one in all of eternity that has held these three offices uh, simultaneously. We see people that are prophets in the Bible. We see people that operate in the priesthood. We see kings, but none holding all three of these being the perfect prophet, the mouthpiece for God. 
the perfect priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is highly elevated above the order of Levi, which is what we see in the Old Testament, and king, uh, king of all creation, king of the universe in that sense. And so we see here in, in this in this one sentence, we're going to look at the fact that he's superior to the prophets. Yeah, it, it ends with his superiority over the angels. We'll talk about that a little bit as we go. But primarily, we're going to look at Christ compared to the prophets. And and then next week, it, I mean, the writer goes into a lot more detail. There's mention in verse 4 of he, him being uh, for a while lower than the angels, but uh, or higher than the angels, but tongue-tied on that. But in the rest of chapter 1 into chapter 2, we're going to look extensively at what the angels' part is in this whole thing and how Christ is superior to them. So we'll leave that for that study. Uh, here, we're looking at his superiority over the prophets. Uh, verse 1 again, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke underline that word, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So when we look at this, the first word in this epistle is God. I mentioned last week in the introduction that uh, if you were going to look at the letters, the Paul's letters or, or James' letter and all that, you look at the different letters in the New Testament, it always, the first word was always the writer. It was always the author of the letter. And the reason for that is that these things were sent around, they were circulated on scrolls. And so we look at that, it would be the same thing as getting a return address on an envelope. I know who sent it before I even get started with writing it. Use envelopes. So rather than have to unroll this thing to the very end to say, you know, signed off by whoever, it was the first word. And so it was just a logical, sensible thing to do. And it's significant because the writer wants to remain anonymous here. He wasn't anonymous to the people he sent it to. Uh, Got to make that clear. He was known by the people. And, and if you look in chapter 13, uh, when he is closing up the letter, uh, he's giving salutations to different ones and all. And so we know that that's the case, but it's significant because God wants to speak to us. And I believe that that's part of the reason why the writer left his own name off. Uh, he's, it's very important that these people understand as they're going through persecution, as they're going through really hard things. I mean, we haven't experienced the degree of persecution that much of the world does and that these people were enduring. Uh, and, and it's very important that they come to the conclusion that God is speaking and he wants to correct some wrong thinking that they have because they're getting off into the weeds in some areas that he wants to bring them back. As a matter of fact, he's going to, he's going to warn them in chapter 2, about drifting away, paying close attention to what's being said so that they don't drift away. And that's a real danger in our lives as well. So uh, when we look at this, we see that he spoke in portions and in ways to the fathers through the prophets. At various times and in various ways is what he says. That this is, it's, it's progressive revelation. Understand that God spoke through progressive revelation to the people in the Old Testament. It was pieces and parts, but none was the full revelation. There wasn't a full revelation. It was always partial up until Christ. Uh, so how did he do this? And, and it, I'm not going to go back and recap the whole Old Testament, but I came across something by a guy by the name of Ray Stedman. Some of you may have heard of him. 
wonderful writer and and uh, theologian and all. And this is what he said. He said, beginning with Genesis, we have the simple but majestic account of the story of creation, the fall of man and of the flood, an account which has never been equaled in all the annals of literature for power and simplicity of expression. This is followed by the straightforward narrative of the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We find the thunderings of the law in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the drama of the historical books, the sweet singing of the Psalms, and the exalted beauty of the language of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Theirs is a richness of expression which stands alone in all the realm of literature. Proverbs presents a practical homespun wisdom. The Song of Solomon, Ruth, and Esther are books of delicate tenderness. There is the marvelous, mysterious language of Daniel and Ezekiel, the wheels within wheels, and all the strange visions. We see how true it is that in many and various ways God spoke through the prophets. Yet it is all God speaking. And still it is not complete. There is nothing in the Old Testament which can stand complete in and of itself. It is indeed all a preparation. When you come to the New Testament, all these many voices from the Old Testament merge into one voice, the voice of the Son of God. Isn't that good? Uh, so we see that there's this whole diversity, this hugely diverse way that God spoke in the Old Testament and that he spoke to his... Why, did he, why does he speak? Because he loves his creation. Because... At that time, atonement for sin had not yet been accomplished. And so he came in limited measure and he, and the, the message went out through different ones. Part of the message. And what the writer is saying here is that's done. And now there's the complete revelation of Jesus Christ in him, in his son. Uh, it, well, so as God spoke at various times, in various ways, in, in time past to the fathers and the prophets, Verse 2, he is spoken in these last days by his son. You'll notice that the word his is in italics. It's added. All right? We'll get to that in a minute. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the worlds. I want you to note something that Christ doesn't speak in Hebrews uh, in the same manner as he never wrote anything. Uh, but he himself is the totality of God's message to us. That doesn't mean that we don't hear from him, but he doesn't personally speak. There's no narrative of Christ in this, in this letter. Because what's being said here is that the prophets brought the message of God to the people. Jesus is the message of God. You gotta understand, that's a huge distinction. And that's what's being said. And, and, and not only that, he says, by his son. By son is literally how that is. And period. That's it. He is the revelation of God. This is not progressive revelation. It's full revelation. And if people want to add to it, uh, sort of the ex cathedra. Do you know what that means? means from the chair. That's kind of how the Pope operates. And I don't want to get into a whole big deal on Catholicism, but it's not... Some guy can now dictate matters of faith and practice that go beyond this. We have the full revelation of God in Christ. And, and, and we have the canon of scripture is complete. 
We don't need any more, nor do we want more, because what happens there is, is it introduces all kinds of weird heresies and doctrines that are not part of God's kingdom. And so we've got to be really clear that he's not just speaking, he has spoken. And yes, he speaks to us, he gives us instruction, he gives us uh, things that are not in contradiction to his word, but he speaks consistent to his word by the Holy Spirit to us. So when he speaks in a person, he's speaking in the person of his son. And what is implied in that is personality. So if you want to understand personality, the personality of God, what the writer is saying is get to know Jesus. And we'll look at that more as we go along here. We've got to understand that Jesus is the eyepiece to understanding the prophets. You know, you look through a telescope and you can look and it'll bring close. It'll, it'll bring into clear focus the thing that you're looking at. Have you ever tried to look through one backwards? It didn't work too well. And, and it's, it, because it's myopic, it, it doesn't work, it, it doesn't make sense. And so, you don't look at Jesus through the lens of the prophets, you look at the prophets through the lens of Christ. And that's what it is. There's an old ditty I learned in Bible school, and it's, in the old, the new is contained. And in the new, the old is explained. We explain the old covenant through the lens of the new. We don't explain the new covenant through the lens of the old. It's there. The gospel is there. I, I, I hear people say, oh, look at the big mean ogre that God is in the Old Testament. And it's like, really? Yeah, his judgment comes into play. But I see so much grace in the way that God deals with people all through the Old Testament. I see the person of God dealing fairly, justly, graciously with people throughout the Old Testament. And then in the embodiment of Christ, God expressing himself fully in a person with a personality, gracious, merciful, compassionate, kind, long-suffering. All of those attributes to who he is are expressed in the person of the Son. And that's why he speaks to us in Son not just in a guy, that it's the full revelation. And so uh, what I'm going to do is, is we're going to start taking this apart, these seven things that I've talked about here. We're, I've got some slides that we're going to use, and we're going to go through in verses 2 and 3, there are actually seven aspects of who Christ is, his person and his work. And, and folks, when you focus on the work of Christ and the person of Christ, that's a good thing. Because what we want to do is understand the person of Christ, who he is, what his personality is like. And what we want to understand flowing from that is the work of Christ. If we stay centered in the person and the work, we can't get off. If we look at how he has revealed himself through his word. The first is Jesus, heir of all things. What this is, he's the heir. It means he's the owner of the universe. He owns it. It's his by right. He's heir of all things. He's the one who possesses the universe. It means he's preeminent. In other words, he's the first one. He's the one who's over all of it. Let me read something from Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 18. It says, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And in him all things, uh, and he is, I'm sorry, he is the head of the church in the body who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He is the center of it all. Praise God. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that he emptied himself. All of this that we've read in Colossians, and that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a lowly slave, and being made in the likeness of men. We'll talk about that more as we go. The point in this, all of this, is that God has spoken. This is the great message of the book of Hebrews, that he has spoken and he does speak. The prophets literally were bits and pieces. Again, Jesus uh, is the one who God has spoken in his son. He is the heir of all things. Way better than the prophets. None of the prophets could make that claim. They were mere men. But here, God the Son coming in, in, in taking on humanity, clothing himself with humanity uh, as heir of all things. Second thing we want to look at here is he's the creator of the ages. Uh, and he is uncreated. Verse 2 also says, through whom also he made the worlds. There's a very interesting Greek word here. In, uh, in the word for worlds here. Usually when you look in the Bible and you see the word worlds, it's the word cosmos. Uh, if you're a little older, you probably remember Carl Sagan, Billions and Billions. He was There was a program many years ago called Cosmos. And I always think of Carl Sagan when I think of that word. But what it means is the material universe. What it means is the world. And that's that's what cosmos means. But there's a different word that the writer uses here. And it's very, very important. It's The word for, for worlds is... Uh, Ionios, and it's where we get the word eons. Okay, boy, he was eons ago. But through whom also he made the Ionios. And what it means is every sphere of existence in every dimension. Think about it for a minute. Now, this will start popping your circuit breakers, gang. It does mine. We can only go so far because we have finite minds. We're finite beings, right? This is an infinite term. And so you, you gotta get to, you get to a certain point where it's like click, pop, and you get smoke coming out. Man, I just, I can only grasp a little bit of that. But what it means, again, every sphere of existence in every dimension. That includes the angelic. It includes heaven, the heavenly realm. It, it, it includes time, a construct of God's. I mean, he owns it. He made it. He doesn't operate in it. He owns history, the eons. The Ionios. But it, it's, it's infinitely more than matter. Okay? Matter being this physical realm. It's all that there is. What he's talking about here, and it's a clear reference to, is eternity. Uh, this is a big word. And again, finite beings, we can only grasp some of it. But what he's saying is, is, is through whom also he created all that is. All of existence. Hebrews 9.26 uses the same word further on in this letter. He, he says, 
he then would have had to suffer once since the foundation of the world. Uh, that's cosmos. But now, once at the end of the ages, Ionios, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he uses both words there, and there's a definite wordplay. We'll get to that more when we get to chapter 9. But he's talking about the end of the ages, the the Ionios, the, the all that is, at the end of all that is, that he appears to put away sin. Here's a question. This leads to me always, you know, I read things like this and I look at words like this and it gets me into this whole creation and evolution thing. And, and I, man, I'll tell you, I, I could get way out there and, and rabbit trail like crazy on that. So kind of have some strong opinions about that. But let me ask you a question. Would matter create personality? Or would personality create matter? I think you know the answer to that. Matter is not eternal. Matter is a construct of God's. It's like when we start thinking about eternal things, eternity, folks, is not a whole bunch of days. I don't understand it. But I don't need to. Personality is not an accident. So you, you got to just understand, I mean, what takes more faith? That matter produced personality or that personality, the person of God, produced matter. That he owns it. Every molecule. Verse 3, um, who being in the brightness or the radiance of his glory. I like the way that this is rendered in the New American Standard, by the way. I'm, I'm teaching from the, the New King James. The NASB, NASB, uh, is the radiance of his glory. And, and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This verse is packed. Five of the seven things that we're looking at this morning are this one verse. So the third thing we're going to look at is he's the brightness, he's the radiance of his glory. He's the brightness of the Father's glory. He's the outshining. That's what that word means. What it, it, it's, it's that which comes out from the source. All right? He is not, and, and one of the things that the Gnostics in the first century taught was that that Jesus was an emanation from God, that he was like, sort of like this reverberation, this emanation. He was a, uh, not God, but he was an emanation of God. And that's, that's a bad doctrine. And there's stuff that goes along those lines today in some of the cultic groups, especially. They have some weird ideas about who Jesus is. No, that's not what's being said. What's say, being said is that he is the radiance of the Father's glory, that he is the outshining of God. That if you want to know God, get to know Jesus. If you see Jesus, you see God. What Jesus said to Philip, he said, show us the Father. Remember, we were at just in the Gospel of John not long ago. And he said, Philip, have you been with me so long? Have you not seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because he's the radiance of his glory. That's why. John 1.4 tells us, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Dropping down to verse 14 in John chapter 1, it says, tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Here is God manifest in the Son, in Son, as we're looking at Hebrews 1 here, revealing the Father's glory, illuminating the Father. That, yes, He's the outshining of the Father, and that as the outshining of the Father, He illuminates the Father. You know, very often people talk about, well, you know, there's God, and then there's Jesus, and, and there's a positional thing there for sure, because Jesus, you know, He was in subjection to His Father, but not to the point where he stopped being co-equal with the Father. He is God. And, and it's sort of this thing of that if you, if you get to know Jesus, that uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. If, if you get to know God, he's kind of unknowable. But you've got to understand that Jesus is the revelation, the singular revelation of God. And that in knowing Jesus, you are knowing God. You're not knowing about God. You are knowing God. You want to know God, know Jesus as he's revealed himself here through his word. And you will know God. Guaranteed. Open your heart. Repent of sin. That's required. You may not understand a thing about this if you have never given your life to Christ because these things are spiritually discerned. And they're spiritually discerned to people that belong to Him. And if you don't understand, if you're not discerning this spiritually, open your heart. Give your life to Christ. Repent of the old life. That means to simply change your mind about it. Turn from the old life and embrace Him. You might have been going to church all your life. You might have been going to church for years. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is working in your heart this morning saying, you know what? You don't know Him. That's an easy transaction to fix. Eternity hangs in the balance. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. Choose to know Him. Choose to understand that He speaks. And part of what He speaks is that there is a dividing line. There are people that know Him that will go on, that will progress, that will be with him forever in heaven. And there are people that choose not to, even churched people. And I'm not trying to get hard or, or, or weird about it, but truly, so there are people sitting in churches that don't know Christ. I got a call this week. Uh, well, actually, it was an email uh, that uh, we got through our website. And, and we get a lot of email through our website. You know, whenever we have email addresses published publicly on the web, you, you get all kinds of weird things. And, and and I got a call from Rick. He said, hey, John, I think this one's for real. And I said, yeah, I know. I already called or, or wrote to this gal. There's a woman in Southern California whose father is here in Newburgh, and he's dying of leukemia. And she's just so burdened. She's saying, and I called her on the phone. And I talked with her. And she said, you know, Pastor John, I, 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 I'm just burdened for my dad. He, we went to church all of our lives and he's like the most wonderful guy in the world. You'll just love him and all of that. But I, I just have got this check in my spirit. I don't think he knows Christ. And we were churched. And I just told her, I said, Julie, her name's Julie. I said, we'd be, we'd love to be honored to come alongside and to go and visit your dad. And, and, and in this last, few moments of his life to be able to present the gospel and the assurance of salvation if he has chosen Christ to make sure that that transaction is in place because he's about ready to pass off the scene in this world. Folks, it's just, you know, it's the gospel. Uh, I don't want to ever not, I don't want to assume that everybody gets the gospel, that everybody understands. I don't want to assume that everybody in the room is saved, and if, if you know that you are, praise God. 
But if there's any question at all, take care of that transaction. Give your life to Christ fully and allow him to invade your soul in a way that he never has been able to. That's what he wants to do. Why? Because he's the radiance of his glory. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. And that's the person that we deal with. So he's that which comes from the source. He's the revealer of God. Oh, that was free, by the way. Um, <laughs> wasn't in my notes, but uh, he's the revealer of God. He is the one who gives us the understanding of who God is and what God's about. His character, his nature. His light shines into the hearts of men. And each one will choose whether to receive or to reject that light. The fourth thing we'll look at here is he is the express image of his person. He's the exact representation of his nature. Is that's how, again, it's how it's rendered in the New American Standard. I've taught this book, I don't know, three times. I don't know. The first time was all in the New American Standard and it kind of reminds me of a funny thing. I went to this church once right out of Bible school and I had I, when I, the church that I came to the Lord in, in Southern Oregon, used the New American Standard. I used the New American Standard all through Bible college. And then I came to this church that was in King James. So whenever I would quote a passage, I'd get corrected. And it was really tweaking my pride because I would, it's like, I'm going to jack you up. But no, I wasn't like that. But it was like, you know, I keep trying to tell you guys what the scripture says. And they're going, oh, well, what you mean is da 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 da. And I was like, and I was there for two years. And I got to be really good friends with him. He's a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel in Gridley now. But I was there for like two years. And finally I said, guys, please stop correcting me. I'm speaking from the New American Standard. I'm learning the, the King James now, so I'm kind of bi-biblical. And it, it took me a while. It took me a while to figure out why you guys kept correcting me. And I realized you're correcting me back to just another translation. Anyway. The point is, is that when it says the express image of his person, it means that he is the exact representation of his nature. This is a statement of deity. This is ascribing deity to Christ. This is saying that he is God. He's an exact reproduction in that sense. And I don't mean reproduction like weird because we know that they are co-equal, that he is God, understanding the Trinity, that there are three persons and one essence, essentially one God, that Jesus, the person of the Son, is God. And that everything that he is about, everything that he is, is God. When it says his nature here, or his person in the New King James, and his nature in the New American Standard, the, the Greek word is hypostasis. And what it means is the essence of God, the deepest reality of who God is. So when it says he's the ex express image of his person, excuse me, Jed, can I get some more Kleenex? This box is kind of empty. Um, thank you. When it says that he's the express, express image of his person, what he's saying is, is that he is God in the flesh. He's saying that he is the deepest reality of who God is. And all of this, is, I mean, we're still in verse 3 here. So uh, one of the things, as we mentioned in Colossians, that he's the image of the invisible God. 
He's the express image of his person. The fifth thing we look at here is he's the sustainer of the universe. It says in verse 3 that he upholds all things by the word of his power. I had an old car I used to claim that verse on. Back <laughs> My 1970 Chevy Nova, that was a big bucket of bolts. And man, I'll tell you, I was a poor student trying to get through school. Couldn't have any money for anything. And, and, and this thing, I, I was studying Hebrews at the time. And when I studied this right at the beginning of Hebrews, I went, aha, that's for my Chevy Nova. <laughs> He's got to uphold this thing by the word of his power because if he doesn't, man, it is going to be falling apart. It's going to be the door will fall off in the street or whatever, you know. But it's, it's a lot more than that. What he's saying here is that he, it's his dynamic. Uh, it is, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The, the word power there is dunamis. It's dynamic. It's, I don't like the word dynamite. Too messy. And he's not messy. But dynamic it fits a lot better for dunamis there. Uh, but what he's saying is that he upholds all things at all times in all dimensions on every level. Try to wrap your head around that and we'll see you next week because he truly, if he upholds all things effortlessly, he doesn't work at it. I start, you know, these guys, I'll tell you, these kind of scriptures just get my mind spinning. Really, Lord, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things at all times in all dimensions on every level. That's all things. And it's effortless. I was looking at this and thinking, you know, it's a little less than 25,000 miles around the earth. All right, now I'm going to go into physics. I love this part. All right, it's just, just short of 25,000 miles in circumference, right? Light travels at the speed of roughly, I mean, I'm not going to give you the change. 186,000 miles a second. That means that in one second, light goes around the earth seven and a half times. That'd be like photon. Go a little further. At this moment, there are roughly 7.7 billion people on earth. And he is upholding all things in the physical verse, upholding all people effortlessly by the word of his power, with a word. When God created back in Genesis, he spoke it into existence. He didn't, he didn't grab a shovel. He didn't work at it. He's God. And, and these are aspects to God that only God possesses. And the writer here in Hebrews is making it really clear, coming in the door, we're talking about some big stuff. They didn't get this in Judaism. They got lists of obedience in Judaism. By this point, Judaism had been so distilled down to awkward lists of obedience. I mentioned before, if you ever go to Israel, try to avoid the elevator on Saturday. They have it set to stop at every floor. And if you're in a high hotel, good luck. Why? Because it's work to push a button. That's how awkward it's become. And yeah, they didn't have elevators back in the first century, but they had endless lists of obedience. Contrast that to Jesus upholding all things by the word of his power. He doesn't need our help. 
question. With this in mind, do I believe that He can uphold my troubled heart? Do I believe that He is the captain of my soul? Do I believe that He speaks to me? That He loves me? That He wants me to have a productive, fruitful life? Not always easy. I'd be lying to you if I told you, oh man, it's always, come and be a Christian. It's great. It is great. But it's costly. Uh, I like to say, there needs to be a death in your family, and that needs to be you. Because he calls us to die to self. And that's not easy. But it's necessary. Why is it necessary? So that he can emerge in my life. That's why we use the tagline here at this church, learning to think like Jesus, because that's what it's about. So much of that is learning to not think like John, because I'm pretty good at screwing things up. But he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the sustainer of the universe. He is the one that that holds it all together without any effort at all. The sixth thing we want to look at here is he's the pure purifier of men's and women's souls. He's the purifier of men's souls. Again, in verse 3, it says, when he had by himself purged our sins. First John 1 John 1.7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's the purifier of my soul. Our souls are scarred. They're cut. They're infected with sin. You read the first three chapters of Romans, and and if you don't walk away with a little dark cloud over your head over understanding a little better your condition outside of Christ, then you're not reading it well. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. And yet, what he did on that cross, and we just visited it in the Gospel of John, those of you that were here, that transaction alone was the purifying transaction for your soul, for my soul, for the soul of anyone who would come. That's the condition you have to choose. Our souls are infected with sin and guilt is the infection. When it says that he purged our sins on the cross, that's an interesting, again, an interesting word. The word is katharismos. What it's the word for is catharsis. Do you know what catharsis is? Have you ever had a really good cry? (laughs) I have. Do you know how you just feel good inside? You just feel cleansed. You feel calm. There's there's just this sense. Uh, I remember so clearly going through some very difficult things uh, when my child went to heaven. And and, and it was, I, I mean, the catharsis that came as time went on was significant. And yet, it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything through which you have a big emotional load and there's just this calm that comes. When he purged our sins, catharismos, it means to release, to relieve. That's what catharsis is. And what he's saying here is that 
He released us. He relieved us from the penalty of sin. And he relieved us from the effects of sin. Yes, do we still have to deal with sin in our lives? Yeah, we do. As long as we're in this life. But the overarching principle there is that he has come to be the purifier of your soul, of my soul. To give us a settledness, a peace where there was nothing but turmoil. To give us catharsis in that sense. Guilt is removed. If you're walking around feeling guilty, if there's sin in your life, then repent. Change your mind about it. Get rid of it. Otherwise, if you're feeling guilty and there's a little dark cloud over your head and there's not sin that the Holy Spirit is specifically identifying, that's condemnation. And God doesn't want his people walking around with little dark clouds over their heads, folks. I I know me. I know I can condemn myself pretty quickly. But when that's the case, where is my focus? It's on me. It's on my insufficiency. It's on my screwed up ideas about things. It's on my not getting it right. Instead of on his sufficiency, on him being the one that holds my life together, that purifies my soul, that gives me strength. It's a form of pride. To to allow condemnation to come in and to stay there is a form of pride. It's negative pride. But it's still anything that pulls my focus off of him and his sufficiency in my life and puts my focus on me, whether it's positive, oh man, I'm a cut above, I'm doing great, yeah, better than you guys, all that. That's blatant pride. But negative pride, I would submit to you, it creeps in. And we can start thinking that instead of thinking that we're a cut above, we can start thinking we're just kind of the scum of the earth and that nothing I say is going to matter, blah, 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 blah. It's still pride. Allow the Holy Spirit to weed that out of your garden because it doesn't belong there. That's your flesh. And he wants us to walk by the Spirit. So he's the purifier of men's souls and he's the remover of guilt, the guilt that comes with sin. Last thing we're going to look at here is he's the sovereign over eternity. It says that when he had purged our sins, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. That's significant. What it's signifying is the work is finished. It's done. It's completed. It's final. When Jesus sat down, after he had atoned for sin... That is an extremely significant statement. There's a couple sides to it, and it's interesting. Because it doesn't say just end with he sat down, but he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That as the sovereign over eternity, he's the one in 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 old in the old days, if somebody was a king, that's fine. If somebody sat on their right hand and they sat next to the king. They were the guy, that was the guy that ran everything. You go back and you look at Joseph in Pharaoh's house. You look at Moses under Pharaoh. It'd be like, okay, one guy is the president, the next guy is the prime minister in that sense. And in an earthly sense, these guys in the first century would understand when they're saying he sat down at the right hand. He's the guy that's running everything. He's the guy, yeah, the king. And we look at the father and the son is significant in that way because the father wills it. The son 
accomplishes it. The Spirit applies it. That's how it works. And so when he sat down, it was not only signifying that the work is finished, but it was also saying, you know what? The universe is going somewhere. And he, as the owner of the universe, is a sovereign over eternity. He's taking it somewhere. That's why we assign Jesus being not just present at creation, but having a hand in creation here. We see that here. That he is the one that's overseeing it. We don't understand some of the intricacies of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but we do know enough to know that each has a place. They're co-equal. Yet the right-hand man is the position that Jesus takes as we look at that. So to summarize, seven things about Jesus from verses 2 and 3, half of this sentence. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the ages and is uncreated. Did you know that he is self-existent? That's a, that's a, that's a big doctrine that, you know, I, I remember studying physics one time and, and I'm not a physics major. Don't get me wrong, but I was looking at this guy named Max Planck and it was called Planck's constant. And what it was is this physicist determined mathematically that at 10 to the 53rd power, 10 with 53 zeros after it of a second after the big bang, the entire universe was roughly the size of a navel orange. I know that. While you're friends at parties with that. My question to Mr. Ponk is, what about right before that? Something, someone has to be self-existent, and I do not see the universe as being self-existent. That's why we're talking about matter is not eternal. Jesus is. God is. And so when we look at this thing, we say that he's the creator of the ages and he is uncreated. That's exactly the point. He's the creator of every sphere of existence. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. He's a chip off the old block. You want to know God? Know Jesus. He's the exact representation of his nature. You know, that doesn't leave a lot of room for interpretation. The nature of God is revealed. The character of God is, is what God is like. The nature of God is who God is. Okay? Um, Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. You, you look at the omnis, the, the omnipresent. He's all present. That's how the Holy Spirit works. You look at the fact that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing. You look at the fact that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. These are attributes that Jesus has. And so as we know these things about him, we know as he is co-equal with the Father that he is the exact representation of the Father's nature. They're co-equal. They share the same nature. They share the same essence, even though there are different persons. Try to figure that out. Luck, you won't this side of heaven. It's an infinite term. And whenever finite beings are dealing with infinite terms, you're going to run up against one thing. The Bible calls it one thing, one word. It's called mystery. I'm comfortable with mystery. I'm not infinite. And when we get into looking at infinite terms, folks, if you're not comfortable with, you're the kind of guy, I'm the kind of, I gotta, I gotta figure it all out. And I've come to, to the place early on in my, in my Christian experience that I'm not gonna figure it all out. There are things that I'm simply gonna have to take faith. That's one of them. 
So he's the sustainer of the universe, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the purifier of men's souls. I love that. Not only does he take the penalty of sin away for anyone who chooses to believe, he frees us from the power of sin. I don't have to. And one day when we're with him, he'll free us from the presence of sin. We won't be living on this dirt ball that is just embedded with sin. I look in the news every day and it's just so sad to see the state of our world. And it's not getting better. I mean, like I looked last week, almost every day there was a mass shooting somewhere. That's horrifying. I mean, we've had to put a security team in place in our church and we have one. But it's necessary because we live in evil times. And yet we know that that this is going to pass away. I love Harvey's encouragements on Tuesday night when he's talking about, man, things are going to wrap up and they're going to wrap up soon. I don't know how much longer the world can stay on the course that it is and sustain. Anyway, all seven of these things, nobody in the Old Testament comes close, certainly not the prophets or anybody else. For that matter, no created being even comes close. What we're looking at, and the writer is very clear, coming out of the gate, we're talking about God. He spoke in many ways, in portions, pieces and parts, to the fathers, through the prophets. But in these last days, and the last days is everything since then, he has spoken to us in Son. God still speaks. And he speaks in the fullness of his son. Verse 4. Excuse me. We'll wrap up with this. Having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's actually the, the conclusion of this first sentence in this wonderful book. Notice it says, having become. He wasn't always much better than the angels. In chapter 2, verse 9, we'll get to it. It says this, it says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So in the incarnation, when God took on a body, when Jesus... This came into this world. And imagine, isn't that amazing? I, I never get tired of considering the gospel and the fact that God created all that is. And then because things went sideways pretty early on, he actually takes on a body and steps into his own creation to fix it. And, and when he did that, he lowered himself. He took himself down. He made himself lower than the angels who are created beings, they're ministers, they're servants. And Jesus made himself lower than the angels in order to atone for sin. This is having become so much better than the angels, having become. He wasn't in his incarnation, but he is. It's the first mention of the word better in this epistle. Talked about it last week, 13 times the word better is used. It's only used 19 times in the whole the whole New Testament. It's a significant word. Jesus is better. 
better than the prophets. And now he's beginning to launch into the section that we're going to look at more next week, better than the angels. And there's a lot of angelology out there. There's some really goofy stuff out there. We're going to talk about that some. We're going to talk about angels from the Old Testament, how they were the bearers of God's word. And so in that sense, there was a limit because they're servants. Why is Jesus better? There are a number of reasons we'll look at. One of them is that we don't need angels to bear God's word. We have Jesus now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which, are, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Better than angels? Yeah. He's the son. And a son is better than a servant. Do you remember in Luke chapter 15, we look at the, the parable of the lost things. It's three parables, but one parable where um, the, the, it's, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. And, and the son that was lost, uh, when he came to himself, the son, he, he takes his father's goods and he travels to a far country. I'm just going to summarize. When, when, when he, he, and he squanders his possessions on prodigal living. Enough said there. And, and then he comes to himself because he's eating pig food now. And for a Jewish boy, that's not a good thing. And, and so he, he comes to himself and he says, I'm going to go back to my dad. I, you know, I've had enough of this. I mean, he knew where the bottom was. The bottom is where you set it to be. It's not some nebulous place. So he decided, you know what? This is the bottom. I've had enough. I'm going back to dad's. What he said there was really interesting. He said, I'm going to go back to my dad's. and I'm going to say, make me like one of your hired servants. Interesting. What he was saying in that is, I don't need to be like one of your house servants, but a hired servant was somebody that you could bring in. Like we look at it like a temp. Make me like a temp, dad. No commitment from you is necessary in any way, shape or form. When you're done with me, you can, you know, but you know, I'm kind of hungry and I really miss what I had here. When we look at angels, they're servants, they're ministering servants, not in the same way as servants in that sense, but they are servants. They are not men. And in the created order, Jesus stepped lower than the angels. But when he was glorified, he resumed his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. That's significant. We'll get into that way more next week. Um, we're out of time, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this first sentence in this, in this epistle, in this book. Uh, there's just so much there, so much that I feel like I'm leaving on the table, and yet we know that you're faithful, Lord. So I pray that you bring to our remembrance.